From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. Now those things that happen in the wilderness are for our admonition and our instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. Brethren, this is the end of the ages. We are the generation that will be going soon on the greater exodus. And the experiences that our ancestors had coming out of Egypt are foretelling, if you will, of things that will be happening to us. Now, if you recount from the story of what happened to them, of these ten tests that they went through in the wilderness, they flunked. They flunked all of them. And in fact, the Lord judged that generation and they died in the wilderness. The children of Israel went into the wilderness and had a whole series of interesting things happen to them. A lot was working against them. The Lord purposed it. The Lord allowed it to happen. It said, I suffered them to be hungry. I suffered them to be thirsty so that I could test them to see if they will obey my commandments and follow my voice. Because you need to know, rather than just verbalize, you need to know you're going to do it. You need to have confidence in the Lord, in your walk. You need to know this. You need to have this strength. You remember Reggie sharing with us his experience of his coach, trying to teach him to be tough, you know, to get tougher, you know, to, to, to get his spirit up, get his strength up, his inner strength up, you know, to deal with it. The reason is that coach knew that if he was going to be successful, if he was going to be going forward, he was going to have to play bigger and tougher guys and tougher games in the future. Now, at that time, I'm sure they had no idea that Reggie was going to be one day a Super Bowl champion. But there's a lot of battles and a lot of games that got to be played before you ever get to that. And, brethren, there's a lot of experiences that we're going to be experiencing before we get to the kingdom. We as a community, as a camp, we're going to go through a lot of different things. And if I were to tell you of them right now specifically, you know what? None of you would sign up to do this. If, if they had told Reggie the pain that he was going to feel, the difficulties, the work that he would have to do in advance of him learning and going in and training and so forth, he wouldn't have done it. Nobody would do it. Nobody makes that kind of a decision to do that. The children of Israel were in Egypt. They wanted to go to the promised land. The Lord allowed them to hold on to that, to have that hope and so forth. But the real plan was when Moses got there, they're going to go to the wilderness. They're going to go to the mountain. They're going to have this incredible experience. They're going to a place where there's no food or water, no food or water. I'm a logistics engineer. If I'd have been back there, I would have said, Moses, what, what food and water were you planning on us using? Moses didn't know the answer. Moses just knew he was supposed to lead him there. He didn't have the answer. By the way, none of us have the answers in place right now for what we're going to be experiencing. But I do know this. In the end, we'll be in the promised land. In the promised land of the kingdom. Now, I believe, I believe that the Lord has given us a pattern, though, some foreshadowing. And I think the reason why he has, and this may be the reason why we're going to be that generation that will make it when the others didn't. 
I, I, I likened it unto this. It's one thing to go into a class and, uh, and, and take a test and flunk. It's a whole other thing to have the test in advance, then go into the class and take the test. In fact, quite honestly, brethren, if we don't get an A on this test, there's something wrong with us. Because we got all the test questions. And we got all the answers. We know exactly what the test is going to be, and we know exactly what the answers are. And tonight, I want to give you a preview of the test. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22, it says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have they put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. This is the moment. Are you ready for this? This is the moment Israel has been waiting for. We have left Egypt by great signs and wonders. Ten great judgments. The tenth time they've tested the Lord and the tenth test was we don't want to go to the promised land. In fact, what they said let me read it for you from Numbers 14 and verse 1. Then all the congregation lift up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, and why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? In verse 4 he said, And so they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Now, I don't know exactly what it was that they saw. All the Scripture tells us is what ten men said. See, they'd sent the spies in, twelve spies, and ten of those spies came back and gave a bad report. Ten of the twelve came back and gave a bad report. They said, yes, it's a good land. Yes, it's a land flowing full of milk and honey, just like what the Lord said, just like what Moses said. But there's a whole bunch of people already in there. In fact, there's giants in there. There's a, the Anakim, and there's a bunch of Amorites and Amalekites. There was a lot of ites in there. A lot of ites in there. You know how ites are. They're, they're terrible. And they didn't actually see them, but these ten guys came back and said about them. And that night, they went from tent to tent complaining and murmuring amongst themselves, and they worked themselves up into a big case. They, matter of fact, they got people so frustrated, women were bawling. Women were crying in the tents. And they finally came back, and they, the rebellion was breaking out by the next morning. Now, mind you that God had just previously shown himself to be more powerful than the most powerful civilization on the earth at that time, the Egyptians, and had destroyed the choice chariots, the top military weapon in the world at that point, had fed them manna, brought water from a rock, spoken by the mouth of God from the mountain, terrorized the living daylights out of them. And yet they did not believe, they did not believe, that he would protect their children and their wives when they go in and fight the enemy. Now, how they compared that and so forth is just beyond us. We just don't get it. But they were so strongly worked up that they flat 
rejected the promised land. They flat said, no, we ain't going. We refuse. And so the Lord put a judgment on that generation. He said, okay, according to what you've said, you said it would be better to die in the wilderness. So you will die in the wilderness. Every one of you that's numbered from the age of 20 and up that we numbered before, you will die in the wilderness. None of you will go in. And I, the Lord, will take your children, and we will go take the land. Now, it says that they later, they kind of repented, and they attempted to go in, and, the, and Moses warned him. He says, don't do it. The Lord's not with you. Well, they thought they'd go ahead and do it themselves. And they went in. They got their tails kicked. I mean, they absolutely got chased back by all the ites and the Malachites and Amorites. And so it just chased them right over the hills, right on back, slaughtered them. And the Lord said, pack up. Head on south. We're going back to the wilderness. You're not ready. Now, that was the tenth test. What were the previous nine? Before we go to look at the previous nine, let me tell you, brethren, this is going to be one of the tests in the Great Tribulation. One of the tests is there's going to be some people that are going to rise up and say, I don't want to go to the Millennial Kingdom. They'll be in our camp. They will say, I don't care if God's coming back. I don't want to be there. I don't want to live with the Lord in the kingdom. I've had enough. I've had it. I'm too afraid. Too much. They're worn out. They're oppressed. They're frustrated. And they'll reject even the kingdom. That will be the test. And then we'll find out whether or not, even in the face of that, will we still choose the kingdom. The previous test, I'm going to put you on a little journey through Scripture now. And let's go back and look at the previous tests up to that 10th test. test. The tests are actually grouped, these 10 tests. Five have to do with belief, and five have to do with disobedience. Belief and disobedience. In other words, what you actually think, what you actually believe, versus what you actually do. Test number one. And these are put in the form of, these are put in the form of, I'm going to make them first person to you. Because this is the test that we're going to feel. This is the test that we will be facing. So, while we're going to use the model of the exodus out of Egypt, we're going to put it in the context of us at the end of the age. You and I. Let's see if how ready we are. Do you believe that the Lord really will save you in the great tribulation? We say yes. But I would remind you of what happened to the children of Israel. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus in chapter 14, they have already been led out of the city of Ramesses. They've begun their journey, and they approach the Red Sea, and they're stuck. They've gone out, and they're stuck. There's three things. There's a mountain here. There's the Red Sea here, and Pharaoh's chariots are right there, and there's no place to go. That is not a comfortable position to be in. And the people are about to stampede each other. The scripture reads for us from Exodus 14, beginning at verse 10. And Pharaoh drew near. The sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not 
the word that we spoke to in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Brethren, when the great tribulation begins, the word will go out that we're getting ready to leave the cities. The word will go out to the brethren. You will have arguments with people. They would say, look, it would be better to stay in the city. Wouldn't it be better to stay in the city? And you'll say, no, 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 you need to get out. See, it's after the greater exodus. We're going to go out here in our sukkahs. We're going to go out and camp. This will be where safety's at. He said, safety? You mean you mean being in a tent will be safer than being here in the city? And you'll say, yes. And they'll argue with you. Some will finally come. Some will come. And the first time that we think that that famed one world government led by the Antichrist is coming out to get us, then you will have people rising up in the camp saying, man, I told you we should have stayed in the cities. They're going to get us. Now, just to show you how confident we are right now in the Lord, if a black helicopter were to fly over this camp, I guarantee you a half of you would panic. Isn't that right? If you saw some government troops drive up and they had UN on the side of the Humvee, what would you think? Huh? Would you be concerned? A bunch of you would be saying, I know I should have brought that 12-gauge with me. We know that Pharaoh's coming. We know that the Antichrist, the prophecies say, he's going to be coming. He's going to have this mark of the beast business. And if you don't take that, you, you, you can't buy or sell nothing. What, what are we going to do? We're going to be put between a rock and a hard place real quick in this thing. So the first thing right off the bat is going to be the question, well, is the Lord going to save us or not? That will be the first. I mean, I'm not talking about that Sunday school stuff where we come up forward, go to the altar. Oh, yes, Lord, please save me. Okay, great. I'm talking about the real saving. I'm talking about you out here with your family. What, what are we going to do? What are you going to do when you see a hundred people in front of you panic? Are you going to panic? Are you going to follow the herd? Or are you going to believe? Are you still going to believe the Lord when all the brethren go this way and almost trample you? The children of Israel were at a moment, and even though they had seen many things before, even though they had been told and instructed before, they came to the moment where they were faced, where they had their faith had to become real. In that situation, at that moment, on that day, in the day they were having trouble there, that day, not tomorrow, today, we got a problem now. You know what? There's a lot of us that believe that God has done great things for folks in the past, and we believe that God will do great things in the future, but there's very few of us that believe that God will answer us today and do something for us right now. We call that now faith. Now faith is the substance of things not seen. Now faith, faith to believe that God will hear your prayer today and deliver you in the day of your trouble like today. We pass ourselves off as believers pretty much because we believe things of the past and we believe things of the future, but very few of us believe that God can help us today. Let me tell you why I know that's true, because every time that you have a problem, you go ask some man about it. You don't ask God first. Then the man has to encourage you. Well, have, have you prayed about that yet? Have you asked the Lord about that yet? Oh, no, I, hadn't, I didn't think about that. Quite honestly, you didn't think about that because you didn't think the Lord would do anything for you that day. You thought maybe the Lord might do something for that fellow today because he believes. 
but not you. You have to go find some of the man. You see, the children of Israel, even though they heard the voice of God, they prefer to talk to a man. Moses, you go up and talk to God. Whatsoever God says to you, we'll do that. A lot of you don't want to have to deal with the Lord directly. You'd prefer to deal through someone else and have them deal for you with the Lord. That's what we'd prefer. So when real trouble comes, real difficulties come, it's our natural tendency not to call upon the Lord immediately. It's our natural tendency, go talk to another person. Only when we're in a panic do we then cry out to the Lord. When it's, there's no other choice do we do that. And yet we have the testimony that we believe we're saved by God, that God will save us. But we sure don't demonstrate it very often, do we? I mean, here we believe God will save us, but he can't help us with this problem I've got today. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. I mean, if we really, if, if we really believe he's saved us, then surely he would be interested in these other things, too, in helping us with those. Moses stood up and said, stand still and see the salvation of God. And that's what you and I will do when we pass the test. We won't move. We won't flee. We won't be in a panic. We won't be disturbed. Somebody in the camp better say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And you will stand perfectly still, and whatever it is that's oppressing you at that moment, suddenly you will see it just go away. God will take care of it. That'll be test number one. And you will go through it. If you get through it, then you'll get to the next test. And that is, do you believe that the Lord will give you water, drinking water? Do you believe the Lord will take you to a place where you'll have water? You know, right now in the United States, uh, I heard this from the press report, you know what the hot topic is today, don't you? is the impending fear of a biological attack on the country, that the terrorists have chemical and biological weapons, and it don't take a whole lot of that to wipe a whole lot of us out. The, uh, so that you understand what the weapon of a mass destruction is, a weapon of mass destruction of this type, if it's set off in the correct place, the numbers work something like this. On day one, we'll first get the first evidence that there's been a biological attack. That'll because the emergency rooms will suddenly be overwhelmed and the alert will go out that people are getting sick all over the place. By day two, there'll be people dropping dead that won't even be able to make it to the hospital. And by day three, 200 million Americans will be dead. There's only 285 million of us. That's a weapon of mass destruction. And it doesn't stop there. It crosses borders. It's not like a bomb. You know, a bomb goes boom, and it's over. You know, you get a dust cloud. But one of these weapons, it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going until it just can't find any more people. That's a weapon of mass destruction. You know, uh, there's a great psalm, Psalm 91. Turn with me there. It's prophetic. Hasn't been fulfilled yet. We've never seen this happen in the earth yet. Wonderful psalm. Psalm 91. Verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. 
He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on it with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Do you know where the safest place is in the world during a biological attack? Is to be at Sukkot, to be in the tents of the righteous. Because that verse says, it will not come near your tent. And in fact, brethren, um, if we are in the days, if, if this were to happen and, and you're saying, well, what do we do if I'm back in town? Stay in your house. Just stay at your dwelling place where the Lord's welcome at. The Lord's welcome at your house. Just stay right there and watch. That's all you need to do. Just watch. And, you'll, and if we have one of those, that's like what the Scripture says, there in your neighborhood, a thousand on your left and ten thousand at your right hand. But it won't touch you. And then you will see that the Lord is right and His Word is true. That if you'll take refuge in Him, He knows how to stop disease. He knows how to stop you from inhaling it. He knows how to keep you clean. He knows how to prevent that from reaching and touching you. Now, we live in interesting days. Either our God is true or we're in trouble. We really don't have a lot of choice about this. It's time to believe. It's time to believe that God does have a great plan. We're part of the plan, and let's get with the program so that we'll live. The children of Israel, that's what they were confronted with in these tests. They didn't have any choice. You can't go back to Egypt. There's no place else to go in the wilderness except stay in your tent. And listen to what Moses and the Lord says. So let's resign ourselves to it. And let's do it. Let's complete it. The issue of water is one of the major things that we have in life. And we have to have it. In fact, in this camp, if you haven't been drinking water, you got sick. You got a headache right off the bat, and you got sick. You got to have water. And the Lord knows you got to have water. In fact, most of your body is water. It's one of the major things that you've got to have. In fact, one of the things that we know, we've got to have shelter. We've got to have food. We've got to have those things. For those of you who have ever taken any survival training, one of the things that you learn is shelter, water, then food. If you don't get shelter within a couple hours, you could die of exposure. If you don't get water within at least two days, you could die. If you don't get food within two weeks, you're in trouble. You know, it kind of works down that way. It's a real simple priority system. The Lord offers his shelter. The Lord says, I know you need water. I'll get you water. The children of Israel went into the wilderness. They couldn't find any water. You're not supposed to find water in the wilderness. You know that? That's the reason why they call it the wilderness. 
In fact, this is the definition of wilderness. Anywhere you go in the world, this is the known definition of wilderness. You take one bucket of water, you walk out to wherever you think it's wilderness, dump the bucket of water, reach down with a cloth, try to get some of the water and wet your lips and your tongue so that you can quench your thirst. And if you can't get enough water off the ground, you just dumped a bucket of it, that's the wilderness. Because the wilderness will drink a bucket of water faster than you can get enough up to your lips. That's the definition of the wilderness. It sucks water away. There is no water. Look with me now to Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went out three days into the wilderness and found no water. You remember what I told you? Two days, no water. That's the basic rules. They went three. They suffered thirst. See, anybody can kind of basically go two days, but they went three. They're hurting for water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah because they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. So the people grumbled at Moses and saying, what shall we drink? And you will too. You will go out and you will be in the camp and people will be crying out and saying, what shall we drink? And you'll be without water three days. Three days. You're going to face this test. The Lord will give you water to drink, but he's going to test you. So we might as well resign ourselves to it that this is what we're going to get through. You know, one of the neat things about really getting through a problem is if you know when the end is. You know, if you really know when the end is, then, then you'll get through it. If you don't know, if you know for sure you're going to get the water after three days, you'll make it. It's, it's when you don't know that it's really hard. It's when, when you have no hope, you, you don't have anything to cling to, to hold on to. When you're waiting, 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 and you don't know when the end will be. The Lord has defined the number of days in the Great Tribulation for us. 1,290 days from the very first start. That's the number of days in the Tribulation. It's about three and a half years. You will count the days down. I believe that I will hear these words sometime during the Great Tribulation. Cheer up, Monty. There's only a thousand days left. When I was in the military, and those of you who've been in the military before, one of the things that you, when you, that you do when you're in the military is you want to get out of the military. And uh, about the time that you get down to where you're getting ready to get out of the military, why they have what's called a short-timers calendar. And people come with these ingenious ways to help to encourage themselves to hang in there and keep going and, and uh, so forth. And uh, typically, when a guy gets down to like he's only got one month left, why they call it 30 days and a wake-up. i just got to be 30 more days, and then i got to wake up one time, and then that's it. I'm out of here. And they call it a short-timers calendar. And every once in a while, I remember one fellow told me he was, he was getting short. He, he didn't have too much long, too much time to go. And he described how short he was, and he said, he said, I was slept on a dime last night, and I jumped off the bed, and I had to free-fall ten minutes before I hit my chute. That's how short I am. You know, we need to get a short-timers attitude when we go into the Great Tribulation. We need to count it down. Count it down. Not how much more that we have to do, but how much we don't have to do. And how we're going to make it. And encourage one another. All along, we're going to make it. Don't let it wear us down and oppress us. Keep going. The Lord's given us that number so that we can be encouraged, so we know we'll make it. Next question is, 
well, if we're going to get water, what about food? Do you believe that the Lord will give you food to eat in the Great Tribulation when there's no crops being grown? Three and a half years. No more semi-trucks coming to Albertsons and Winn-Dixie and all that right here in America. You do know that in our communities, all you have to do is try, stop those semi-trucks for two days and the shelves are empty. You stop them for two weeks and you'll have anarchy in every city in this country. It'll be anarchy. Brethren, we live in a very interesting civilization. From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. The civilization that we live in, the difference between what we live in now, civilization, and total anarchy in your neighborhood is a very thin blue-gray line called the local police department. And if they get overwhelmed, and they can be overwhelmed very easily, it's every man for himself. And I guarantee you, your neighbors will take that attitude. And that's part of the reason why you and I will need to get out of the cities. Because the great danger will be there. Because those people will go instinctively to a survival of the fittest mode. Here in Oklahoma, on September 11th, when the World Trade Center towers were struck by the airplanes, my son and I were driving in our vehicle, and at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, this is only a couple of hours after the event, there were gas lines in Oklahoma in all the major cities, and they were selling gasoline for $5 a gallon. No airplanes hit us here in Oklahoma. There weren't any bombs that went off here. The people panicked that fast. I mean, you know, this is an attack on us. First time we've ever seen such a thing. And Albertsons, they had people down there at the shopping centers, you know, down there raking the shelves. That was in two hours, and nothing had hit us yet. We just heard about something. That's how quickly they responded. And it will happen just as quickly in your communities as well. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 2 through 4, it says this, And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And that's what you will hear when we go out at the Great Tribulation. Even if you haul out your extra Y2K wheat in the five-gallon buckets and so forth, it won't last. You take a crowd like this right here, David Ray will tell you, he is hauling the food in by truckloads daily. There's 5,000 meals just being served. We're just, serving, we're just serving supper. Just the numbers, the logistics numbers would wipe out any stocks just like that. And if you don't have a reap supply system, you'll run out real fast. And that extra little piece of beef jerky you stuck back in your go bag, that won't last either. In fact, it'll probably be like that bottle of wine we were supposed to use for Havdalah. It was back here. I don't know. Somebody found it, and it's gone. Somebody went back and said, oh, you know, I found the uh, bucket or the bottle at the end of the rainbow. Here it is. Praise God. Now, even more fundamental than water and food will be our concerns. There will be the concern of, is God really with us? Is his presence really 
with us. Because we all know in our, in our spiritual makeup, you know, we, we know we don't make it just with food and water and just because we get away from the enemy. We, we know we won't make it. We, we know God has to be with us. God has to be in this with us. We, we know that. And the children of Israel began to question, even though they left Egypt, is God really with us? Turn with me to Exodus 17 and verse 1. Then all of the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses. And why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take it in your hand, your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? For those that are in spiritual leadership, this is the number one question that we always ask whenever we're wondering whether or not we should proceed forward to do so. Does the Lord, is the Lord with us in this? Does the Lord want to do that? If, if we go and do that, is, is the Lord going to be in it? Is the Lord present with us in this? The, you, you will ask that. You'll make it a little while. You'll be going along a little while. Things will be getting on, and, and then, that, then that will be a really serious question. And because you don't see the phenomenology of a miracle happening in front of you every moment, you'll be saying, ah, well, I think God's left. You know, I don't see any miracles happening today. And you'll look for some phenomenology. You'll look for some hook, some handle, and he's just being patient and watching you. And, and you'll get agitated, and you'll get nervous, and, and you'll get upset. And, and the next thing you know, you'll be talking to somebody else, and somebody else will agree with you, and that obviously confirms the truth. So I must be thinking right, because somebody agrees with me. Get a couple of you to agree together, and you're ready to stone Moses, ready to take on the leadership. The children of Israel had to face a tremendous uh, dilemma in this regard of answering the question. And you have to know, you have to know that the Lord's with you, present, that he knows you're there and his presence is with you. And one of the things that we try to stress and we try to teach to you, the Lord says that he's in the camp. He emphatically says that to you. I'm in the camp. And in fact, in the camp, we've instructed you, keep the camp clean. No indiscreet thing. The Lord says he's there, he's walking around, he's paying attention. You know, we want him to be present in the camp. We'll be challenged and questioned with that. Number five, this is an interesting one. Do you believe that the Lord is the one and only true God? Maybe there's some extras. Maybe we should check in with them. I remember a story of a 
uh, that was shared with me of a, uh, when I was in the Vietnam War. There's a fellow who was uh, uh, shared his testimony with this fellow, and he was agnostic, didn't believe. He, he uh, didn't want anything to do with God. And a few short months later, uh, they hooked up with each other, but only this time they were in Vietnam. They were in the war zone. And the fellow who'd been sharing his faith walks up, and this guy's got a gold cross hanging off of him. I mean, there's this gold cross on a chain hanging right there on the front. And he walks up, and he wow. He said, I, I talked to you. A couple, you know, have, have you become a believer? He said, yes, I sure have. I said, well, praise God. I mean, tell me about it. He says, he reached in his pocket, and he showed him his rabbit's foot. He said, I got a rabbit's foot. I got this St. Christopher medal. I got this thing. I'm, I believe. You see, when he was in trouble, when he was in trouble and when he was in danger, now he wants to believe. But it, he's not believing in the one true God. He just wants to believe in whoever's got the miracle. One of the things that we learn in, in hospice ministries, and hospice ministries are those of us who minister to people who are there for their last hours. They're dying. One of the things that we learn is that when you're coming up to someone who's getting ready to die, they believe. They'll believe in the doctor if they think he's got the miracle. They'll believe in the chaplain if they think he's got the right prayer. They'll believe in whoever, whoever's got the miracle, I need you, I'll believe in you. But believing in just anything doesn't work. Your belief is only well-founded if it's in the Lord. Because he's the only one that can make it happen. So just believing in anything is not going to work. The real question here is, will you believe in the one true God? Because there will be some who will rise up in the camp who will offer, I have the solution for you. Some will rise up in the camp, come with me. I, I will lead you. Let's go this way. Don't, don't follow them. And they will split you off and they will take you out of the camp. And you will split away. We do it all the time. It's called church split. Oh, sure. You know, we really believe in the one true God. Even in a time of peace, we don't believe in him. What are we going to do in time of war when we'll believe in anything, when we're put to the test? The children of Israel didn't make it 40 days with Moses out of their midst. He's up on the mountain. They didn't make it 40 days before a bunch of them made a golden calf. And by the way, Aaron helped them. Less than 40 days, they pulled the gold off their earrings and their noses, and they threw it in there, and they melted it down. I've always loved this part of the dialogue when Moses came down and talked to his brother Aaron. I've always thought that was a very interesting conversation. Moses said, Aaron, what in the world were you thinking? What did you do? He said, hey, it wasn't me. I just threw the gold in the fire, and this golden calf jumped out of it. That's what it says. He says, it, it just jumped out of the fire. Sure it did. You'll, you'll hear similar statements in the camp. I didn't really do it. That's just what happened. Because you'll believe in anything. Let me tell you something about belief. You know, it's something I've learned about belief. People only do what they really believe in. They only do what they really believe in. Not what they say, but what they do is really what they believe in. And we'll see what you really believe in when we're put to the test. You know, the children of Israel uh, plundered Egypt. They brought the gold out. And the gold got used for two things. One, 
to make a golden calf, and two, to make the tabernacle with. And there's a whole bunch of you, at least, I don't know if it's here in the camp, but I've met some other brethren. I'll never forget this. I had some brethren come up to me. That's very serious. We were talking about the end times, about the greater exodus and so forth. And this one brother, he said, he came up at the end of the meeting and he said, Monty, can, can I just talk to you for just a quick second? Yep, sure, brother. You know, and you know, we have a lot of people who come up and want to speak to me at the end. And he comes up and he's very serious and he looks at me and he says, what do you think? Gold, silver, huh? Gold coins, right? That's what I should get, right? Obviously not the stock market. Gold, gold coins, right? Gold, silver, right? Sure, brother. If you want to make a golden calf, that'll, that'll carry. You can melt that down. You can make one of them. The scripture tells us our gold and silver will not deliver us in the great tribulation. The Lord will deliver you. It won't do it. Listen, when we get out amongst the brethren and it's just us, your gold coins are worthless here. You need something to eat? You got it. You need some help? You got it. You can't pay for it here. How many of you have been ministered to in the camp? Somebody has helped you in the camp and they wouldn't take any pay for it. How, how, many, how many of you got help? Something happened and so forth. See, money don't mean nothing here. You can only spend your money back in Egypt. And if you go carrying the gold coins out of there and you start carrying them into the camp, I'm telling you what's going to happen. There's going to be a great temptation to load up and let's go back to the city. Because I've got all this money, and I can't spend it here. The only place I can spend it is back here in the city. And the people are going to load up and say, hey, uh, I know how we can get saved. Let's go back to the city. And what they're really doing is, I've got money. And we'll say to them, no, no, man, they barricaded. They won't let you back in. No, I know. I'll, I'll pay them. You'll pay with your life. You won't be paying with money. You'll pay with your life when you leave the camp. We'll face that test. The next set of tests are not in the form of belief, but again in the form of disobedience. And they are in the form of a series of rejections. I want you to see what the children of Israel did. There. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, they rejected the very bread that God had given them. The manna. They rejected it. Numbers chapter 11, beginning at verse 4. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and garlic. And how we, our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to eat except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance of that of bdellium. And the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in a mortar or boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. That means it was deep fried. I would have loved it. I don't know what their problem was. Anything deep fried is fine for me. I've always told the brethren that my two favorite foods are salt and grease. And I like to get it in a variety of ways. You know, the word manna... The word manna uh, means, what is it? You know, they saw it and they said, what is it? So they call it manna. What is it? Let me just ask you something, just from the standpoint of contemptuousness and so forth. If you were to walk into your house one evening 
and your wife is in there preparing something to eat. It's at the supper table, and she's at the stove, and and you and uh, you lift up the lid of the pot, and you look in there. If if you were to say to your wife, kind of, what is it? There's a good chance you wouldn't get any of it. And really, part of what the word "what is it" bears with it, there was a contemptuous attitude toward it. Mind you, this was bread from heaven. They didn't have to labor for this. They didn't have to plant no seed, harvest no grain, mill anything. All they had to do was gather it up, bring it in, kind of process it into either a cake or boil it or whatever they wanted to have, and and it tasted deep fried. I wouldn't have been contemptuous toward this at all. But you know what? They rejected it. They complained, and they said, well, we don't have the variety we used to have before. You know, I'm telling you right now, brethren, you are going to hear these words in the camp in these days ahead. Somebody is going to complain about the food that we have at that point. Somehow the Lord will have provided. We'll have some food. We may even have some manna. By the way, Revelation, it says he will give hidden manna to the people. We may have some actual manna. I mean, the stuff that talked about in the Bible. And I guarantee you someone will rise up and complain and said, man, this, all we got is this. You know, man, it would be a lot better if we could go back to the city. We could get Burger King and McDonald's and all that stuff. In fact, I took an application to this study uh, several years ago, I, I, when, I, when I was really praying over this and teaching through the Torah portion, I said, I need to understand. I said, Lord, help me. Help me to understand the dynamic here. What, what's really happening? And so I went through this list of all the things that they complained about. Look with me here. Verse 5, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Fish. Um, when I did a little study on that, I found out that uh, fish was free in Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians couldn't stand the stuff. They got it from the River Nile they, and from the sea. They'd capture fish and so forth. They used it for fertilizer. I mean, that's what the Egyptians thought of fish. You know, grind the stuff up, make fertilizer out. The, the Israelites were eating Egyptian fertilizer, and they thought it was great. That's, that's what they thought was so great about Egypt. Egyptian fertilizer. And then it goes on, the cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. And in those days, they didn't have big farms. They, they had to grow them themselves. Those were gardens. They were little home gardens that they would grow, that you would grow around there. So they were talking about stuff they had to labor for, you know, to grow. And I'll never forget, I went through this, and I said, what's a leek? What's leeks? And I actually went to the store. I actually went to the store, and I bought some leeks. You know, the big, big, looked like a green onion, giant green onion. You know, the big stocky thing. And I went looking for a, I went looking for a, a recipe. I mean, what do you, what do you do with a leek? You know? And um, I made some, um, it's almost like a potato onion soup. It's made with leeks. It's a French soup, a French onion uh, creamy soup. And, in fact, the first soup that you had out here to this week was uh, that kind of soup that you can make with leeks in it. It's pretty tasty. Of course, I love onions to begin with. My grandmother, maternal grandmother, taught me how to love onions. I eat raw onions. 
I love onions. So this one I do understand why the Israelites missed those. But you know what? I still, as much as I love onions, I still don't think onions would have been better than manna and salvation and deliverance and freedom and a hope and a future. I think I'd still give up onions for that. Or the melons or the garlic. Now, I did meet a brother who was a garlic freak once. He was here at the camp. Everything that we fixed one night, he had to have extra garlic in it and so forth. Now, I can understand garlic, too. I love garlic. But I'm still willing to give it up. You know, there are some things that you've got in your life right now that are going to come into question. I don't know what it is. But there's something out there that is going to come into question. You're going to face this test, whether or not you're willing to give that up, you know, to choose the Lord, to choose safety in the camp, and to be delivered by the Lord. We will face that test. And some will reject the food that the Lord has given. Psalms 78, verse 18. Psalm 78 is a parallel passage to the teaching I'm giving you, in which the, the psalmist goes through and kind of elaborates for us this whole process of what Israel did, how they rejected through unbelief and disobedience while in the wilderness. Psalms 78, verse 18 through 20, it reads, And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God, and they said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give us bread also? Will he provide the meat for his people? And there came a moment there where they literally cried out and they said, uh, Lord, uh, give us meat. Not ask. Demanded. Demanded. And it's called the graves of the greedy, the graves of the lust. You know, if God is providing, if God's going to provide, he's providing food, he's providing water, he's providing bread. Hey, let's just up the menu here. I mean, if he's willing to give us the basics, then let's ask for the stuff that we really want. And the children of Israel went from basic need into what we call wants. And a group of them made demands that uh, they wanted different varieties and, and so forth. They wanted the food of desire rather than the food of need. And there, there will be that test. We'll, we'll get to the point where things are working out okay, we're making it and so forth, and then we'll up the ante. We'll say, well, we desire this, and we'll demand of God that, and we'll reject God unless he does it. And we'll kind of all wrap it up into, and if he can't give us what we really want, then we'll reject his presence, and we don't want his salvation. They'll go that far. And that's essentially what the children of Israel did. If you look in Numbers 11, look at verse 20, where he says, when, uh, when they asked for this meat, and the Lord said, yes, I'll give them meat. He says, not but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? There was a series of things that we rejected there. We rejected uh, his presence, we rejected his bread, and we even rejected his salvation. I say that directly because the, the cross-reference here that talks about that is Psalms 78, verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and fire was kindled against Jacob, 
anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. I mean, when it came to what the, the desires of eating of food, they weighed that more than even the presence of God, trusting in God, or even his salvation. They were ready to throw the salvation of God completely away over the issue of what do we get to eat, a certain type of food. The great irony of this is, mind you, and this is the part that's stunning to me, when they came in and they made this complaint, they said, Moses, we want meat. We want the Lord to give us meat. We're not going to take no for an answer. They were standing at the edge of the shores of the Red Sea. They could have organized fishing parties. At their feet was their livestock, was their flocks. If they wanted something to eat, like meat, like lamb chops or something, go out and get one of the lambs, slaughter it, eat it. They already had it, but no. Their position was, what's ours is ours, what's yours will negotiate for. I mean, that kind of greedy. Sometimes... When people get into the greedy state, they don't even recognize the things they already do have. They think they've got to have more. It'll get that bad. Well, the Lord will have already provided. We'll already have some of the resources, but we won't want those. We'll want more. And that's the reason why the Lord said, Yes, I will give them meat to eat. I'll give them a month's worth of meat. I'll make it come running out of their nostrils. I'll make them vomit it. I'll give it to him. In fact, that's exactly what the Lord did. He brought the quail to him, and they went out, they captured him, and they brought him back. And the first people that touched that, that moment it touched their teeth, they died. They died. The moment the people who were patient and didn't eat lived, who weren't following after their greedy desires. And if you have greedy desires and you decide you want to tool one of those power plays on God, you're going to lose that game. That will be a test in the wilderness. That will be a test in the Great Tribulation. Number nine, will you reject God's anointed? Numbers chapter 12, please. Verse 1, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. And as a result, Miriam got to spend a week out of the camp with leprosy. Now, you've got to understand a little background about this. Moses married a Cushite woman. You know what a Cushite woman is? A black woman. A black woman. Moses married a black woman. And the family got upset. Moses is God's anointed. And they thought they were well within their rights to take him on. So you know what they decided to do? While they had a dispute with him about that, they elevated to the level of the whole spiritual level to challenge his authority, his call, and his anointing over it. And they got in serious big-time trouble over it. And this is a very common lesson for those of us in spiritual leadership one of the great fears that we have in leading the congregation is that we are always trying to lead in such a manner so as that we don't incite the brethren to come against God's anointing in our life. 
you know, don't don't come challenging the authority that God. I mean, I understand I'm I'm a man and I make mistakes and I'm, I'll be happy to correct those things. But don't challenge the anointing because you won't win that one. The Lord will show will settle that one. I'm just like any other leader in a congregation. I've had the experience of uh, some brethren coming and uh, deciding they didn't like my style or they didn't like how I was ministering or operating or they weren't getting the attention that they wanted, whatever it was. And so they came and agitated and things began to build and so forth. And every year when I teach core, which is sometime in the summer, when it comes around, it's like this cycle. We watch the living Torah come around and we watch somebody get agitated in the congregation. And they demonstrate the living Torah to the whole rest of the congregation. Somebody decides to take on the leadership of the congregation. And about the time we come to the teaching of Kor in the Torah cycle, the great rebellion and great mutiny, then the issue gets resolved. They lose. Happens virtually every year, except if I can get a kid to be bar mitzvah on Kor, and then we seem to pass it for the year. Um, anyways, I remember this particular year that we were having some difficulty in our congregation in the past. Those brethren are not with us anymore. In which that they came up, and the complaint they had, it just... It chills went through me when I heard it. The word that they came to me and they said was, you take too much upon yourself, Monty. That was their complaint. You could substitute the word Moses for Monty, and it's a quotation from Scripture. That's what Korah said to Moses. You take too much upon yourself, Moses. It was Korah, really what he wanted, he wanted to be in charge. He wanted to run the temple system. He didn't want Aaron. He didn't think Aaron was qualified. He wanted to run it. So he wanted to, so he took on Moses because he knew Moses was supporting Aaron. You know, you can see the organizational behavior and structure there, the little manipulation that's going on in that process. And um, in, in recent times when I had other brethren coming to me and saying these kinds of things, I had been in the habit of trying to teach the principles of leadership and the principles of shepherding in the congregation. And because I'm a Torah teacher, I had been making a lot of reference to the examples of Moses, you know, about how he learned to delegate and other principles about it. And some of my folks got started getting real agitated about this. In fact, the word started going around and it was being circulated around says, you know, Monty is no Moses. You know, Monty's no Moses. Because I kept making reference to Moses about his leadership style and technique, and I was trying to emulate. I was trying to follow those principles. And finally, one day, I felt led of the Lord to try to bring this matter to a conclusion. So I came in and I said, Brethren, I hear it's been reported that I am no Moses. And I said, I am here to agree with you. I am no Moses. And I, I say the same thing right now. I am no Moses. In fact, I'm not worthy to be the dust under Moses' feet. I am no teacher like him, as much as I would desire to be. And I do not have the skills that he had. And so I said to the brethren, I'll make a deal with you. I'll stop making constant reference to the leadership technique of Moses if you guys will quit treating me like Moses. And that kind of cut right to the quick to the situation. Brethren, in the camp, in the Great Tribulation, when we're in the wilderness, there will be an assault on the leadership of the camp. There will be an assault on the anointing, whatever it is. It may be the 144,000. 
it may be a pillar. I don't know. I, you know, the Lord says that he's going to lead us in a camp, and we'll know, and, and we'll know who the leaders are, and we'll know where the anointing is, but there's some brethren that are going to rise up, and they're going to think that they're more qualified, whatever, or this guy's not doing a good job, or what. And they're going to come challenging the anointing. And if you join in with it, you're going to suffer the same results of our ancestors in the wilderness. It will be the same test. Will you reject God's anointed? Now, the tenth test was, again, the rejection of the promised land, the rejection of going into the kingdom. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet or not, but every one of these have to do with the Messiah. You see, the Messiah, brethren, is our Savior. If you reject God's salvation, you reject the Messiah. The Messiah is the living waters that come from the rock. He is the rock of salvation. If you reject the waters, if you don't believe in the waters, you've rejected him. And you don't believe in him. He is the true bread from heaven. If you reject the bread, you've rejected him, the Messiah. He is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. If you reject the anointed one, you're rejecting the Messiah. He is the king of the land. If you reject the land, you've rejected his kingdom. Now, the children of Israel before didn't know it was all about the Messiah. We are the people, the last generation at the end. We're the ones that see, have been taught. We've received the promises. We've received the Messiah. We've heard his words. And he's the one that says it was all about him. Because they were learning about salvation and we're the recipients of it. They got it in symbol. We got the substance. Only for us, if we now go out in the great tribulation and we reject and we uh, disbelieve and we disobey, it's a direct affront to the Messiah. Now, we are saying we do believe in the Messiah. The Messiah has saved us. Amen and amen. And this test is going to find out, are we ready to really follow him in the kingdom? And all these tests are going to be measuring us against him. It's not about the water. It's about the Messiah. It's not about the bread. It's about the Messiah. And we're going to have to be spiritually wise to remember that's what the test is. To pass the test. Instead of just lip service to the Messiah, will we do it? Will we really do what we, when we call him Lord? Look with me in Psalms 78 and verse 40. Again, the conclusion, <clears throat> the conclusion of the matter about what was happening in the wilderness, this is how they concluded. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness. The word him there is, is referring to the Lord. And grieved him, the Lord, in the desert. And again and again they tested God and pained the Holy One of Israel. And that's what all the tests are about. We want the Messiah. We're hoping the Messiah will save us. He'll provide for us and so forth. Every one of the tests are really measuring us against the Messiah. Do you really want the Messiah? Do you really want him to be your savior? I mean, he's willing to do it, but do you really want him? And, we're gonna, and the Lord will get ready to find out if we really do, if that's who we really want to live with. 
Let me conclude by taking you to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, or Judah, only has one chapter, so we just have verses there for it. And in verse 5, he summarizes and speaks to the situation that we've been speaking to this evening. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And Brother Reggie last night mentioned to you, you know, we have a doctrine running around. In fact, I used to teach it. I was a good Southern Baptist boy. And we taught once saved, always saved. But, but brethren, while I believe in the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb, and its ability to cleanse, and I, and I take nothing away from that, it definitely has the power to save and so forth. I watched my ancestors under the blood of the Passover lamb go into the wilderness and get judged by the exact same God, and some of them didn't make it to the promised land. I would like to hope, and this is my hope, my hope is that God's salvation is so great that when I get to the kingdom, when I get there, I will see my ancestors that they have been resurrected and raised up, and that they were only examples for us, for us to learn to trust the Lord. But let me make a suggestion to you, which is really what the point of this is. Don't test the Lord on this. Obey. Trust Him. Walk with Him. Let's just stick to that. I think we'll be better off. I really do. We'll save all that theology stuff for later in the kingdom after we get there. And then we can sit there and argue over how it would have worked. But let's get to the kingdom first. Let's not put any of that to the test here. We need to pass the test the Lord has given us. We don't need to put any more tests before the Lord. We're getting ready to find out who are the real believers. Who are the real sons and daughters of Abraham. Who are the real citizens of the kingdom. There's going to be one great test here at the end. Now, brethren, there are ten steps to it. Five of believing, five of obedience. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio.